SoFi, remember, this is a company that that is growing like wildfire without student loan payments, right? Student loan mm -hmm. payments are on pause and the company's still growing 50, 55, 60, 65%, 70% year over year. It's still doing that. What's going to happen if all of a sudden, boom, these student loan payments restart? This company's growth narrative is going to meaningfully accelerate into 2023. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing today? I'm doing good, Aaron. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, anything new in the markets that you want to touch on before we get into all our topics? Oh, we're going to touch on it over the next hour, Aaron. We're going to touch on it over the next <laughs> hour. But yes, I am. I'm excited about about the state of the markets. Uh, mm -hmm. Big summer rally. Pullback here feels more like a natural consolidation and will continue to be a breakout in the end of the year. So I'm confident on the course of inflation. I'm confident on the course of stocks. And I think uh, there's there's more upside ahead. So very bullish from where I sit with today. All right, cool. And I'm looking forward to getting into all of our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Google, Apple, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind. That is the Luke Lango. Ton of things we want to talk about today, starting off with one of your favorites, fintech darling SoFi. Um, right. There's been some news on the horizon for the stock. Essentially, the biggest being the student loan moratorium. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been here. This moratorium has been here since the pandemic. Uh, reports say it's finally going to end within the next few weeks. Could this be the final shoe to drop for SoFi stock to finally enter rally mode? Uh, yeah, so SoFi um, obviously built its fintech empire on the back of student loans, student loan refinancing specifically. Uh, that's where they, they cut their teeth in this industry. The company has since become a lot more than that. And that's why we like the stock, why we like the company long term. We think it's become the Amazon of finance. Uh, it's a place you can trade stocks, trade cryptos, have a checking savings accounts, learn about finance, set budgets, uh, apply for loans beyond just student loans, car loans, all that stuff. So um, we think it's a very interesting platform. But at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of revenues come from the student loan refinancing business. Uh, that business has been essentially put on hold because in the pandemic, there was a decision made by the U.S. government to put a pause on uh, student loan repayments. Now, that, that's a big deal because there's more than $1.5 trillion in outstanding student debt in the U.S. economy today. So U.S. economy is a $20 trillion um, uh, beast. $1.5 trillion student debt. So we're talking a big slice of the pie here, very significant slice of the pie. The uh, Biden administration expects to, by the end of this month, probably within the next week, deliver a decision on what they're going to do with the student loan moratorium. Are they mm -hmm. going to extend it? Are they going to cancel student debt? Are they going to cancel some student debt? Are they going mm -hmm. to just 
you know, resume all payments without any cancellations. It's become a real political hot topic because obviously there are a lot of students out there that probably voted for for Biden that want their student debt to be canceled. They don't want those big Mm -hmm. payments. But on the other side of the coin, you have inflation as this massive problem. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at the numbers, U.S. student debt, it's been above $1.5 trillion for several quarters now. So, And it's not declining. So it's not like these students were given a pause in payments and then decided to go ahead and pay down some of that debt. Instead, mm-hmm. what they've done is just not service the debt. And that gives them extra spending money. So whatever mm-hmm. money these people are saving from not paying student debt bills – I'm sure some are definitely paying down the debt, but the data says the vast majority are not. So that's mm-hmm. an extra, you know, couple hundred bucks a month that is going towards spending on restaurants, spending on travel, spending on clothes, mm-hmm. spending on food. That's an inflationary factor, right? So mm-hmm. the, the Biden administration has to look at things like, okay, do we want to potentially anger, upset, frustrate a handful of students, or do we want to potentially exacerbate the inflation problem, which is impacting Mm -hmm. 340 million Americans and even the entire globe, 7 billion people, right? So they have to look at that. And I think the choice is pretty obvious. The Biden administration wants to do everything possible to improve the inflation situation. We all know the Biden administration has a very low approval rating. We know that. That's what all the surveys say. And we know Mm -hmm. also, according to those surveys, that the biggest contributing factor of that is inflation. So goal number one in the White House is fix the inflation situation. Mm -hmm. The way they do that, one of their biggest tools in their toolkit right now is to restart student loan payments. So it looks like what the Biden administration is going to do is they're going to cancel $10,000 worth of debt Mm -hmm. per student if that student makes less than – or adult – if that person Mm -hmm. makes less than $125,000 a year. And Mm -hmm. that seems like a very good middle ground here. It's going to allow Mm -hmm. them to live up to the promise of canceling some student debt yet also restart ostensibly, but yet also restart the payments for what's going to be about 90% of people – and the average student debt is about $30,000 per head. So $10,000 cancellation is only 33%. You still got 67% mm-hmm. to pay off. So um, I think that that restarting is going to happen in September. And it's going to do two things. One, it's going to create a big deflationary impact on the U.S. economy. You're going to have all this spending, this extra spending that – I think, what is it, something like 40 million Americans have student debt? I forget the number. It's a large number. Anyways, that all these Americans have this extra spending cash. It is now going to go towards servicing debt, and that's going to be less spending towards discretionary items. That's disinflationary by itself. Number two is it's going to be a massive positive for, yes, SoFi. SoFi, remember, okay. this is a company that that is growing like wildfire with out student loan payments, right? Student mm-hmm. loan payments are on pause and the company's still growing 50, 55, 60, 65%, 70% year over year. It's still doing that. What's going to happen if all of a sudden, boom, these student loan payments restart? 
this company's growth narrative is going to meaningfully accelerate into 2023. At the same time, you're probably going to get some disinflationary tailwinds for the economy into 2023. At the same time, you're probably going to get some sort of dovish evolution from the Fed into 2023. You put all that together and you have a concoction for what could be a pretty meaningful, large, significant, use whatever word you want, enormous breakout mm-hmm. in SoFi stock. You know, we had that massive quarter. The stock had that huge jump. SoftBank came Mm -hmm. out and said they're going to sell. The stocks retraced some of those gains. That was Mm -hmm. SoftBank selling. Now SoftBank's out. Student loan repayments start. Boom, off to the races. I think the stock can get to 20 bucks within 12 months. I really, really love that name. And even in 20 bucks in 12 (laughs) months, I'm not a seller. Because I think this is a 40, 60, 80, $100 stock. This is a secular compounder for the next decade. Getting in now is like getting in an Amazon in 2002. I think it's a fantastic value proposition with Catalyst on the horizon. So you're not going to have to mm-hmm. wait that long. That's my two cents on SoFi. So what happens if instead of uh, what you're saying, the $10,000 forgiveness, that they just extend the moratorium for another determined amount of time moving forward? They, they don't have the numbers yet. Not going to happen. Not, not going to happen, Aaron. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just it's like I, I literally view that. I mean, I've said stagflation is like a 2% chance of happening. I think yeah. the Biden administration extending the student loan moratorium is a 0.01% chance of happening. This okay. is an administration that needs to fix its approval rating before the midterm elections, that needs to fix mm-hmm. its approval rating before 2024. They know the big reason for their low approval rating is inflation. They need to solve the inflation picture. If they mm-hmm. what the biggest tool they have to solve the inflation picture is the student loan moratorium, or rather taking that back and making students pay their debt. That is a way for them to fix inflation. It is a tool they have right at their disposal. It's going to be meaningful, and they don't have to do anything fancy schmancy or jump through any hurdles. They literally just have to say student loans back on. So I think Uh there's a very small chance that they extend the moratorium and an equally Uh small chance they just forgive all student debt. The reports, Uh again, are $10,000 per head for people making less than one hundred twenty-five grand. So – that means the bulk of student loan payments are going to restart in September. I think that's is a there a challenge. likelihood that that number is higher than ten thousand? Yeah, I mean, it could be fifteen, it could be twenty. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's really all that meaningful for the SoFi story. I think it'd be meaningful okay. for the inflation story. Mm-hmm. But again, the SoFi story. This is a company that's growing fifty, sixty, seventy percent without any of these these payments happening, right? Yeah. So you did. This is just fuel to the fire. You know, the fire is already mm-hmm. burning bright. People love SoFi. Members, people are just flocking to the platform. The people that are on the platform, the so-called members, are using multiple products. Products member is growing. Revenue for each product is growing. Like, everything about the unit economics of this company are fantastic. Everything is fantastic. Mm-hmm. You throw more student loan payments on top of that, and boom, that's how you get a rocket ship type stock over the next 12 months. So. I'm really not concerned about how this plays out for SoFi. I think the only thing that breaks SoFi's back would be a complete cancellation of all Mm -hmm. debt and or an extension of the moratorium indefinitely. And I view both of those outcomes, 100% cancellation or indefinite extension of the moratorium, I view both those outcomes as together less than 1% likelihood of happening. So from that perspective, I think the the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of SoFi Bulls at this point in time for the stock to go to seven, 
eight, nine, 10, and then 20 within the next 12 months. I think there's a clear runway for massive, massive upside in this, in this tiny stock. All right. Looks like SoFi still going strong. Uh, switching gears a little bit. Can we get a pulse check on cyber stocks? You know, you've been bullish yeah, on them sure. before, uh, and they've been soaring recently. Uh, recently, one of the bigger names in the space, Palo Alto Networks, just popped big after reporting mm -hmm. quarterly numbers. Um, do you still like these stocks? Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. I mean, let me so let me pull up Palo Alto's quarter real quick and um, just rattle some numbers off for you. Because I remember when I was going through the print, I was just impressed by the growth acceleration. There is mm -hmm. we're supposed to be in a recession. We're supposed to be in a slowdown. We're supposed to be in a in a period of time where things are getting tougher for businesses, where it's harder to grow. But when I was going mm -hmm. through Palo Alto's print, I was like, oh my goodness, everything is. Either accelerating or not decelerating all that much. Like they are not finding it hard to grow in this environment, meaning the cybersecurity tailwinds at the back of cybersecurity companies are truly mm -hmm. enormous right now. So let's look at some of those numbers. Um, so revenues were up 27% year over year. Last quarter, they were up 29%. The previous quarter, they were up 29%. So not much of a slowdown at all. If I'm looking mm -hmm. at their revenue growth over the last eight quarters you go 23 24 23 28 32 29 29 27 right we're right in cadence with historical growth uh, trajectories so mm -hmm. no slowdown on revenue growth billings growth actually accelerated billings were up 44 percent year over year and that's the, the more important metric for palo alto right because mm -hmm. there's a lot of accounting things that happening between the billings line and the revenue line so revenue is more of like a derivative of top line demand whereas Billings is the actual top-line demand, Billings growth accelerated in the quarter, up 44% year over year. We've now gone from 28% to 32% to 40% to 44%. That's four straight quarters of accelerating Billings growth out of Palo Alto Networks. Talk about a strengthening tailwinds for cyber stocks. Very, very powerful. Margins look great. Customer growth looks great. Um, active millionaire customers looks great, up 26% year over year. Um, you're getting positive operating leverage out of the business. So the numbers are just fantastic, and the stock is soaring. Also, the stock didn't pull back that much. So as it's soaring, it's soaring basically to new highs. Very, uh -huh. very solid stock. Very, very solid story. I'm only concerned about the valuation over there. But I think what those numbers do broadly underscore – is amidst the global geopolitical uncertainty that we're feeling right now, which is actually only intensifying. We had Russia mm -hmm. invade Ukraine. That's created a lot of tensions in Europe. Um, now there's talk of is China going to invade Taiwan? China and Russia are meeting. Uh, President Xi and um, and Putin are meeting. So like, what's going on there? There's just a lot of geopolitical tensions happening uh, throughout the world. And as a result of that, you're getting companies hyper-concerned about securing their own stuff. Mm -hmm. Security is a spend vertical that does not get slashed in recessions, right? Like if, if you're spending – just think about yourself and your spending. Times get hard. You got to tighten the belt. You got you to gotta cut back on some spending. Okay, maybe less nice dinners out. Uh, maybe no new cars, uh, maybe no, no travels, no expensive vacations. Uh, maybe as opposed to going to Target, we go to Walmart. Maybe as opposed to going to Vons, we go to the dollar store or Ralph's or whatever, we go to the dollar store. Those transitions make sense. But am I going to stop paying for my home security system? If I live in a rough neighborhood or if I'm concerned mm -hmm. about Brisbane Burger? No, 
Not at all. Like I'm going to, if uh-huh. anything, maybe increase my home security spend if there's more burglaries in, in the neighborhood. That's what companies are doing. You know, they're looking at their budgets. Yeah, they're cutting back on digital advertising. Yeah, they're cutting back on marketing. Yeah, they're cutting back on certain things. They're firing people. So they're cutting back on personnel expenses. But they live in a neighborhood where there's more burglaries. There are cyber attacks uh-huh. happening all the time in the world. Yeah. And the burglaries, the burglars rather, are pretty proficient burglars. We're talking maybe some high-end Russian crime syndicates. China is very good at, at hacking. So you're very – if you're a business right now, you're very concerned about your home, your data, your, your security. So you're spending mm-hmm. a lot of money on that. That's the one vertical in the enterprise spending stack that is not getting slashed at all right now. And rather, as evidenced by Palo Alto's numbers, is growing and growing and growing. A couple weeks back, Cloudflare reported excellent numbers. They're a derivative cybersecurity play. They basically protect the internet. Um, and their, their growth is also accelerating. They've reported something like eight, I mean, I think it's actually 10, 10 quarters in a row of 50% plus revenue growth. Absolutely absurd. That stock roared higher. It's basically doubled off its lows. So you're seeing very strong momentum in the cybersecurity space. And I don't think that stops anytime soon. Come hell or high water, recession, no recession, mm-hmm. boom, slow down, Fed hikes, Fed cuts, inflation soars, inflation doesn't. I think regardless, security is going to remain a constant need, a constant demand for uh, enterprises. And as a result, cybersecurity solutions are going to see very, very, very strong demand trends. I like cyber stocks still. They're breaking out. Palo Alto is a bit rich for my taste. The valuation feels a bit maxed out, especially after this recent pop. Um, Mm -hmm. Cloudflare is a very attractive name in the space, but I think there's some smaller names that are a bit more interesting, kind of the up-and-comers in cybersecurity. That's where I'm invested right now. That's why I really am am excited about the opportunities here. But broadly, I think the whole (laughs) space, the ETF is HACK, H-A-C-K. I think the whole space is positioned for very nice growth over the next 6 to 12 months. So with Palo Alto uh, declaring a three-for-one stock split um, and expanding its stock repurchase program by $950 million, does that put it in a better position for a buy? Listen, I think no. The the short of that is no. I I think Palo Alto's valuation is pretty maxed out, and I would not be chasing it. But what that buyback does tell me, Microsoft's announced a bigger buyback. Alphabet's announced a bigger buyback. Right. So Palo Alto's big buyback is coming on the heels of a bunch of big buyback announcements in the Q2 earnings season. Uh-huh. That's bullish. What companies okay. did is coming into 2021, they started mm-hmm. or 2022, at the end of 2021, they started hoarding cash. Corporate uh-huh. cash piles rose and rose and rose and rose and rose, and they kept rising throughout 2022 because these companies were still doing pretty good business. They were producing uh-huh. profits and cash flows, and then they were just hoarding those cash flows. They weren't spending. They weren't investing because they were concerned about uh, impending economic slowdown. When you're concerned about a slowdown, you're concerned you might lose your job, you're not going to go out and start spending everything. You're going to start building that savings account, right? Mm-hmm. That's what companies did. They were concerned about a slowdown. They were concerned about demand destruction. They were concerned about inflation, concerned about the war, concerned about gas prices, concerned about all these things. And as a result, they started building that savings account. They started hoarding cash. So corporate cash balances really soared throughout the first and second quarters of 2022. Now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, those companies are putting these record cash balances to use, right? It's like, okay, I'm concerned about my job. I'm building my savings account. 
all of a mm-hmm. sudden my boss said, you know what, your job is fine. You're going to have a job for the next 10, 20 years. You're, you're, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh, okay. I got, you know, all this money saved up. Might as well start spending it. So I'm going to start spending it. And it's important to notice where I start spending it first, because that's where I believe the best opportunity is for my money at that point mm-hmm. in time. Right? So where are companies putting their money to work now? Companies are putting their money to work on stock buybacks. That mm-hmm. is what we've noticed throughout Q2 earnings season. One of the biggest themes was where is all that ca- corporate cash going? It's going right back into the stock. That means that these management teams over at Alphabet, over at Microsoft, over at Palo Alto, they believe their stocks are undervalued. And they believe mm-hmm. one of the best uses of their corporate cash right now is to buy back their own stock. They wouldn't be doing this if they thought their stocks were going to keep falling. Why waste? Mm-hmm. What, what was Palo Alto's? $900 million? Is that how big the buyback was? Uh, nine hundred and fifteen million. Yeah, so why spend nine hundred fifteen yeah. million dollars on a stock that you think is going to go lower? Yeah, no, I mean, and then Alphabet, you know, these other guys are announcing multi-billion-dollar buybacks. So we're talking billions of dollars flowing into the stock market from companies themselves buying their own stocks. That is a huge vote of confidence in current valuations and where mm-hmm. these management teams believe their stocks can go over the next 12 months. Interestingly enough, a lot of these buybacks were concentrated in the technology sector. So, mm-hmm. you know, for what it's worth, and for me, I believe what it is worth is that <laughs> tech stocks are undervalued and ready to rip higher over the next 12 months. At least that's what uh, corporate management teams are saying these days. Hmm. Well, I know a sector that you've definitely gone cold over in the past few months is uh, digital advertising. You know, you've told mm-hmm. us that with the recession here, ad budgets are going to get cut. Um, yep. So stay away from ad stocks. You know, yep, it makes yep. sense. But the economic momentum has re- uh, remained pretty decent. So is it time to maybe jump back on these digital ad stocks or is the advice continue to stay away? Right. Yeah. So there's been an interesting uh, dynamic at play in the digital advertising space. Um, long story short. The recession has forced companies to rethink their marketing spend. And -hmm. when you're forced to rethink your marketing spend, you start to say, okay, maybe I won't do experimental advertising. Okay. But I still got to advertise because I still need to sell product. The consumer is still buying. Unemployment yeah. still very low. The consumer, you know, retail sales numbers are still positive. So the consumer is still buying. I just can't go out there and get super aggressive with my marketing. So mm-hmm. let's cut all the experimental channels and let's double down on the tried and true proven channels. So we've mm-hmm. seen things like Snap really get hurt. Right, because Snap is an innovator. They're a digital advertising innovator. They're trying to come up with new ways to advertise, augmented reality, virtual reality, try-on outfits, lenses, all this stuff. That's an entirely unproven advertising vertical. And while in the long term it has tremendous potential, if I'm a brand, I'm like, I don't know what the ROI numbers are there. Or if Snap can show me some, they're only 12 months old, whereas Facebook can show me 10-year-old ROIs, right? So I know which one has a longer track record, is more proven, feels more stable and secure. So Snap advertising is getting cut. Pinterest advertising is getting cut. Um, You're seeing probably Instagram stories advertising is getting cut. But core Instagram advertising, probably up. Core Facebook advertising, probably up. You know who's doing Mm -hmm. really well? Google search. Google search advertising, it it, it is up. It's growing very nicely right now. (laughs) And interestingly enough, 
what a lot of dollars are going towards actually is connected TV. A lot of okay. uh, the, the, the shift is still happening from linear TV to internet TV. And I believe Nielsen just had a report, maybe it was last week or two weeks ago, I remember reading it, that for the first time ever in a given week, uh, internet TV consumption time outpaced linear TV consumption time. So it's that mm-hmm. critical flip where now all of a sudden people are watching actually in the entire United States, people are actually watching more Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, HBO Max than cable TV. So mm-hmm. we're, that shift is still happening. And because that shift is still happening, people are migrating, advertisers are migrating ad dollars from linear TV to connected TV. Connected TV, sure, it's, it is an unproven advertising channel or it's relatively new, but mm-hmm. the fundamental characteristics of it are very similar to cable TV. If it works in cable TV, it's probably going to work in, in connected mm-hmm. TV. So you're not seeing a slowdown there. You're still seeing a lot of ad dollars shift to connected TV. So that is one advertising vertical that is doing really well. But yes, broadly, digital advertising is down, but there's been pockets of strength in that world. What I think mm-hmm. is going to help the weaker pockets of strength going forward. And the weaker pocket of strength to me, the, the biggest weakness has been in social advertising, Snap, mm-hmm. Pinterest, Twitter. What I think is going to help them, specifically Snap, is recent regulatory scrutiny on TikTok. So okay. TikTok, as you know, I, I use TikTok. Um, <laughs> do you use TikTok? Yes, of course. Yeah, so TikTok has has taken over the United States. I mean, it is the most popular social media app by far and away. You go to anybody between the ages of 20 and 40, and chances are very high that they watch a lot of TikTok. Um, It's Mm -hmm. it's addicting. It's engaging. Uh, The the secret sauce there is that they were the first to sort of pioneer an interest-based search algorithm, not a social-based search algorithm. Mm -hmm. So you go on Instagram, you go on uh, Twitter, you go on Facebook – and even Snap too, you go on those platforms and if you don't have friends, the platforms aren't really useful, right? It's all about mm-hmm. connecting with friends and then seeing what your friends are up to, talking with your friends. But on TikTok, you, you don't need friends. I actually have a TikTok account and have zero friends on it and it is the most entertaining platform I've ever used because it's an interest-based algorithm. You just scroll through mm-hmm. videos and depending on what you watch more of, what you like, what you interact with – it registers mm-hmm. that, feeds it into its AI recommendation algorithm, and then boom, just starts giving you content that you interact with the most that you like. So you can have no friends in the platform and mm-hmm. still enjoy the platform tremendously. That's why it's been successful. But regardless of that, TikTok is now under the regulatory microscope of the United States government. And there mm-hmm. have been warnings of China harvesting your data. The U.S. government saying this is not a safe platform to use anymore. You have to get off it. Like we highly recommend you not getting on, you not using this platform. <laughs> the implications of that, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't want to delve into the politics of China's harvesting data, but they, they probably are. But I, <laughs> what I, what I do know is that yeah. there has been enough coverage of mm-hmm. this issue in the news that consumer behavior is going to change a little bit. You know, you go to your phone okay. and you, you, all of a sudden you, you're used to, you know, scrolling to your TikTok app and you're like, maybe not. Maybe not TikTok, okay. you know, been reading some bad things about it. I think you're going to get millions mm-hmm. of people across America that are going to start doing that. They're going to scroll to their TikTok app and they're going to be like, maybe not. Maybe I'll okay. try something else. 
So if they try something else, what, what are they going to try? Snap. What is the okay. most, the, the, the closest analog to, um, uh, to TikTok in the social media space? It's not Twitter. Sure as heck not Twitter. Mm-hmm. Definitely not Facebook. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Instagram, not really. Instagram reels, stories, they try to do that, but not really. Um, Pinterest. Mostly just reposting no. TikToks. <laughs> It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. The Instagram reels is mostly just reposted TikToks. Um, it's, it's Snapchat. Snap is, is the closest analog to TikTok. So if indeed mm-hmm. over the next few months, elevated regulatory scrutiny on TikTok does lead to consumer behavior at the margin saying, maybe I won't use TikTok as much. That behavior is not mm-hmm. going to shift to going and doing things in the real world. I'm sorry. I, I'm a realist. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that consumer behavior is going to shift from one mobile app to another mobile app. So it's going to go from TikTok mm-hmm. to Snap. So I see Snap getting a big engagement tailwind over the next six months. I'm very positive on that stock. It's been beaten down. I think it is time to get right back into that name. I also think that from a broader advertising perspective, you're going to see ad budgets continue to be under pressure for the next six months. But then after mm-hmm. that, I think in 23, you kind of get a nice rebound in advertising spending. So I think that you'd want to be in these stocks as they're getting washed out right now before that 2023 rebound. So I like the social advertising space. I think there's upside there because they've been so beaten down. There's a lot of runway for, for a rebound. Um, programmatic advertising, the Trade Desk, Pubmatic, Magnite, uh, companies like that are doing very well because that's one of the we talk about the whole space coming down but pockets of strength programmatic mm-hmm. advertising is one of those pockets of strength because it allows higher roi on spend so i mm-hmm. think that continues to succeed continues to thrive you're gonna see a lot of success from those companies but broadly speaking digital advertising we kind of hid for a bit now mm-hmm. let's poke our heads back up and, and start seeing where, where, the, where, where the opportunities are and right yeah. now when i do that the biggest opportunity I've seen digital advertising today is Snap. I think Snap okay. is probably the best buy in the entire ad space. Gotcha. Snap. Definitely lo- looking back into that. But another sector you've been vocally bearish on is the semiconductor world. Um, yes. You know, and you've kind of given the same reason, reasoning as digital ad stocks. Um, again, the idea that a recession is coming, semis are cyclical, yep. dish the yep. semi stocks. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like that's all a good call because just yesterday, uh, semi-giant Intel hit a five-year low. Uh, contrarians maybe smelling a buying opportunity here. Is it or is it just stay away from semi-stocks right now? Yeah, I would I would stay away from semi-stocks. I would the I, there was this mass misconception that they lost their cyclical characteristics, but they didn't. Everyone thought mm-hmm. that because we're pivoting into this new digital era. Um, mm-hmm. of you know IOT and AI and autonomous vehicles and smart buildings mm-hmm. and all this stuff that demand was going to remain so strong for these things it would wipe out the cyclical history of semiconductors but that's mm-hmm. that's not the case people don't understand in the 90s there was a big demand boom too with PCs and in the 2000s there was a big demand boom too with mobile phones and smartphones and in the 2010s there was a big demand boom too with cloud computing and data centers so there have been big demand booms for decades yet those demand booms never stopped semiconductors from being cyclical because the Mm -hmm. cycle in semis isn't driven by demand. Demand is always pretty strong. At least it has Mm -hmm. been for the past three to four decades. 
it's driven by supply. Mm -hmm. What happens is semis go, the semi industry goes through this phase where, okay, supply is tight, demand is super strong. They see demand is super strong. So semi companies start building out fabs and factories and they start expanding production. That takes two or three years to come online. Once it does come online, you get a massive rush of supply. So supply massively increases. Demand mm-hmm. stays pretty much the same. Now the supply-demand balance is shifted in favor of supply. So now prices go down, margins get cut, and the stocks go down. Then all of a sudden, demand just keeps ticking higher. It eventually catches up to supply, and the semis wait and wait and wait, and then demand eventually outpaces supply by a significant margin. Prices rise, margins rise, revenues rise, the stocks pop. Then you're back at the same place you were in the beginning. Supplies tie with demand high. So then they start building mm-hmm. out supply again. Takes two or three years. Supply takes a big quantum leap. All of a sudden, supply outweighs demand. Prices drop. Margins drop. The stocks drop. Lather, rinse, repeat. This is the cycle semis have been through for mm-hmm. decades. And this time is not different. So I think what happened is we had demand outstrip supply. Supplies coming back online. Demand's actually taking a bit of a hit because of the recession. Uh, because mm-hmm. of the economic slowdown that we're seeing across the globe. And that demand slowdown is going to converge on what is going to be a lot of new supply of these semiconductor chips in 23 and 24. So I mm-hmm. think you're just now starting to enter a down cycle for semis that could last 12 to 24 months. With this first leg lower being driven by demand and the second leg lower being driven by a swarm of new supply in 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. So I really don't like the outlook for semi-stocks, at least for the next six months and probably for the next 12 to 24 months. But as is the case in the market, you got to reevaluate these things on a month-to-month basis. But right now, I am pretty bearish, continue to be pretty bearish on the broad semiconductor industry. Intel is a name that I don't really like all that much. They continue to flounder. You know, there was, I remember when AMD first came to the scene, as in came to the scene as it became a real big player around mm-hmm. the mid-2010s. And everyone was like, oh, AMD, they're just going to have their, their, you know, their fun and they're going to do their thing. And then Intel is going to come back and punch them and knock them out because uh, mm-hmm. Intel's the 400-pound gorilla in this space. But, man, the markets have been waiting for that knockout punch for one, <laughs> two, three, four, five, six, seven years. When is that mm-hmm. knockout punch going to come? It's not. Now AMD is bigger than Intel in terms of market cap. And it looks like mm-hmm. AMD may be the one that delivers the knockout punch. So mm-hmm. I don't like what's going on with Intel. I think their innovation is completely stopped. I think now they're just in a frenzy to play catch up to AMD. I think mm-hmm. NVIDIA is in the best position because of their GPUs, but still – they're not immune to semiconductor cyclical weakness. So I think you want to wait for that stock to wash out before really getting into it. The valuation is still pretty rich. And then outside of those three names, uh, NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, I think the rest of the space entirely subject to the, the cyclical weakness of semis. So I would just stay away from these stocks for now. I, I don't like them. I, I don't think they have good upside. And I think there are a lot better opportunities for your money over the next six to 12 months. So with what we're seeing in the semiconductor industry right now, what impact did the CHIPS Act actually have on the industry, if any? Yeah, so the CHIPS Act is is, is going to give these companies a lot of money to build new supply, which is, which okay. is fantastic for, for the long run. But again, yeah. it fits into this cyclical kind of nature of the industry. 
A bunch of new supply at first is going to dramatically hurt pricing and dramatically mm-hmm. hurt margins and absolutely crush profits, which is going to lead to the stocks heading lower. So the CHIPS Act is a long-term tailwind, short-term headwind for the industry, in my gotcha. opinion. And that's why I think these semi-stocks, mm-hmm. they're going to keep coming down. But eventually, likely within the next 12 months, they're going to bottom and it's going to be a great, great, great buying opportunity. <laughs> I think probably by the first or second quarter of 2023, Intel, NVIDIA, AMD, a couple of these other semi-names, I think they're going to be fantastic buys. But I think you got to remove some more froth first. I think you got to price in more supply first, price in less demand first. You got to have the stocks come lower. Once they come lower, you come in, you buy the dip, and I think you can ride them higher into 24. But for the next 12 months, I would say let's let's stay away from this space. All right. Definitely stay. All right. Stay away from the semis. Uh, sector right now uh but moving on into housing you know we've gotten some more data over the past yes. week um again we've been, we've talked about housing i feel like almost every week on this podcast but what is this data saying now again we've all, we've talked about last week are we in a crash or are we in a normalization as you like to put it yeah so i would say the the recent round of housing data for july uh strongly emphasizes that we are in a great normalization and not a great crash. Okay. Um, Pretty much every key metric that the housing market can be judged off of is falling right now. Mm -hmm. But all of them are falling, one, from exceptionally elevated levels in 2020 and 2021. And two... They're falling towards what are historically normal ranges. Month mm-hmm. supply, for example, normally hovers between three and six months. We have now mm-hmm. bounced into that range. Very normal. Inventory, normally between 1.5 to 3.5 million homes. We are now moving into that range. Very normal. Even volume of home sales, there is a range defined by the past 20 to 30 years. We're now in that range. Even though volume of home sales are crashing, we're crashing into that range. So I would broadly say that everything that I'm seeing, whether it's inventory, month supply, actual volume, or even prices, right? We, uh, home prices, everyone likes to say, oh my God, home prices dropped in July, first time ever. Guess mm-hmm. what? They drop every July, folks. That's <laughs> the, housing is seasonal, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. From June to July, home prices always drop. One, mm-hmm. two, three percent. They always do every single year. Going back to 2010, it's been true. The only exception was 2020 because of the pandemic. So throw that out. Every single okay. year, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 21, home prices drop from June to July. That's mm-hmm. what they do. And guess what? They tend to keep dropping from July to August, September, October, November, December. Then they reverse course and head higher in January, February, March, April, May, June. That's what home prices do. It's seasonal. So we dropped 2.5% from June to July. That mm-hmm. is a bigger than normal drop. Normally, we see 1% to 2%. So 
So the two and a half yeah. is a bit worrisome, but we saw a two and a half percent drop, I believe it was in, in 2012, and that didn't lead to a housing crash. So I, it's nothing worrisome in the data right now. Everything that I see in the data continues to point towards a housing market that is normalizing and not crashing. When I look at the ground level and I hear stories of people shopping for homes in San Diego specifically, what mm-hmm. I'm seeing is a lot more inventory, but still a lot of buyers. And those the, the inventory out there, yes, there, there are price cuts happening, but the price cuts are happening from really elevated levels. Like let's say a home in a neighborhood was going for for a million dollars a year ago, and it climbed all the way to a million seven over the past twelve months, because that's really some of the increases we've seen in San Diego, some massive increases. So let's say that the going rate in this neighborhood is now one point seven, but all these homes came in at one point seven. This new inventory, and it's not selling. They're cutting to 1.6, 1.55, but they're not cutting to 1.3, 1.2. They're doing minor cuts, and they're not budging below those minor cuts. So they're mm-hmm. kind of just waiting for the demand to come back. So I think what we're seeing right now is a housing market that got really hot, retreated, and is now consolidating. We're trying to find the footing of the housing market, and we're going mm-hmm. to find it. I think that mortgage rates are going to stall. They have stalled out. I think they're actually going to move a little bit lower into the end of the year. That's going to help the demand side of the equation. I think supply is going to remain pretty tight because people aren't now so gung-ho to sell anymore. So I think the the supply-demand dynamics of the housing market are going to gradually improve. And what you're going to see is a housing market that went super high, came down, normalized, bounce, volatile, found its footing, and then it continues to grow into 23, 24, 25. So I'm not worried about anything I'm seeing in the data. If we start to break out of these normal ranges, if month mm-hmm. supply starts to move towards six, seven, eight months, red flag. Inventory okay. starts to jump to two and a half, three and a half, four and a half million homes, massive red flags. Home prices mm-hmm. drop four or 5% in August, massive red flag. Um, those are the things I'm watching. I'm not seeing those trends yet. I'll continue to mm-hmm. watch the data. The next round of data comes out next month. It'll be August data, obviously. We'll see what happens there. But everything I'm seeing in the market today, all the data today points towards normalization, not crash. And that's mm-hmm. why I remain bullish on certain housing stocks. I think that their price for crash, if we do get normalization, that's going to lead to to big upside in those names. So to your point, the people who are saying that we're in a that we're in a crash right now is are, is it because they're seeing these downward trend of numbers and seeing it, seeing the future of it continuing to drop, or are there other factors right now that they're seeing that or they're saying they're seeing that's attributing to them saying that it's a crash right now? Oh, so I mean, yeah, I mean this is kind of a, a definition thing. Um, the housing market is definitely in a crash in terms of volume of sales. Right. Okay. The actual existing home sales numbers. Actually, let's 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 pull it up just so people can understand what I'm talking about here. I'll pull it up on Y charts over here. I think they sometimes have the best uh, charts to actually look at. So, and I'll I'll screen share with everybody so we know what's going on here. Okay. So, look at that. I mean, let's five year chart. Definitely looks like a crash, <laughs> right? I mean, we went from 6.5 yeah. million homes, existing home sales, 4.8. I mean, that that's 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 a crash. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's a crash towards normal levels. Okay. 
we were really elevated here and so we pulled back but what's normal as you can see is this four and a half to five and a half range actually it goes mm -hmm. to go further back than this i don't know why this stops here but um that's a very normal range you know we are where we were pre-pandemic yeah it's low you know you know it's low but here we were at 4.7 4.8 4.6 you know Mm -hmm. So long as we bottom here, there's nothing really worrisome about it. The worry is that we continue and that this goes down to 4.5, 4, you know, down into this range. Then mm -hmm. we're in housing recession type stuff. But so right now we're right here, you know, and if this bottoms in this area, then we're totally fine. And I have confidence it is going to bottom because what caused this right there, what caused this? Was this? <laughs> let's let's zoom in. Do you see that correlation here now? Mm-hmm. Yep. Housing existing home sales six point five million January twenty two to four point mm -hmm. eight million June twenty two. Mm -hmm. What happened? Mortgage rates went from 3.05 in late December to mm -hmm. 5.8 in mid-June. So this housing crash was driven by an unprecedented mortgage rate surge. I mean, let's let's get rid of the mm -hmm. existing home sales for a second and look at look at the max of the 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 mortgage rate. I mean, we haven't seen a spike like this from 2.7% all the way to basically 6%. We haven't seen a spike like mm -hmm. that ever really, except for the late seventies. So yeah. this is truly only has one precedent in terms of the, the, the spike we've seen in mortgage rates in early 2022. My thesis is that this does not continue. We don't straight line this. We don't have this. Mm -hmm. What we have is boom. Now we normalize and maybe we retreat a little. And then we come back down. So if this line now starts to look like this, then you're going to see home sales start to look like this. Boom. And it's going to normalize right in this four and a half, five, mm -hmm. five and a half range. It's going to normalize there. So that's my thesis on housing right now is everything I'm looking at. You're looking at a market that is normalizing, not crashing. And the drivers of the recent reset in housing are drivers that are not going to persist. Our mortgage rates going to now go from five and a half to six and a half to seven and a half to eight and a half to nine and a half to ten and a half. No, mortgage rates are very likely to top out at six and then come to five and a half, five. I see them bouncing between four and five for the next three to six months. If mm -hmm. that's true, mortgage rate stabilization will bring demand back into the market, will turn what is a housing market crash into a housing market consolidation, and that's where I see things going for the next three to six months. So uh, to answer your question, I know it was a long-winded way of answering your question, but yeah, <laughs> people are saying crash because it is a crash. Look how far we've, okay. we've come yeah. down. We've come down quite a bit, but yeah. prices have not come down. Prices mm -hmm. remain very elevated. If we pull up the chart of, of – uh median price so we see that prices are still still rim rocking right mm -hmm. yep the so prices haven't come down so when i when i talk about housing market crash what i talk about is the prices of the homes not the actual volume mm -hmm. sold of the homes i'm talking about prices and so where i see prices okay. going is a very seasonal adjustment in the back half of the year followed followed by 
normal growth in 24, 23, 24, 25, normal growth being three, four, 5% a year. So that's where I see the market going. I bullish on housing stocks for this reason. Um, the thesis gets thrown out the window if inflation stays hot and mortgage mm-hmm. rates stay high. If mortgage mm-hmm. rates go to seven, eight percent, this market is going to crash, guaranteed, no doubt about mm-hmm. it. it. Affordability will plunge to levels that make absolutely no sense if mortgage rates <laughs> go to seven or eight percent. In that scenario, home prices will drop more than twenty percent. I don't think that's likely at all. So mm-hmm. this thesis is predicated on the assumption that inflation will ease and mortgage rates are maxed out. That's the housing rebound thesis. That's where I stand. All right. Uh, well, let's zoom out right now and look at the broader markets. You know, we had this big market rally from mid-June to mid-August, and now we're kind of pulling back. Uh, I think you've explained this before, but in case for our newer listeners, what's going on here? Is it a bear market bounce, bull market consolidation, and ultimately where are stocks going to end at the end of the year? Um, sure, sure thing. Uh, yeah, so what we had is a very massive market rally from mid-June to mid-August. Um, on the order of, what well, was it was about 10% for the Dow, about 20% for the S&P 500, about 30% for the NASDAQ, and more than 50% for a lot of growth stocks. So a very large, very significant rally. Now mm-hmm. we're pulling back. The question on everyone's mind is, okay, was what we just had a bear market rally and this pullback is going to bring us to new lows or Mm -hmm. is what we had the start of a new bull market and what we're experiencing right now is just consolidation, a breather in that new bull market. I -hmm. think it's the latter. Here's what's going on. Okay, The rally from mid-June to mid-August was driven by one thing, a shift – well, two things. A shift in inflation expectations, which forced a shift in Federal Reserve rate hike expectations. So we started to get data in mid-June that the economy was really slowing and things were getting really, really ugly. That led traders to believe that the demand side of the inflation equation was going to significantly moderate in the coming months. And that Mm -hmm. as a result inflation would moderate in the coming months. You saw oil prices collapse. You saw all commodity prices collapse. And indeed, in July, inflation considerably cooled. As inflation considerably cooled, investors started to shift their expectations for how the Fed would act over the next 6 to 12 months. There was a point in time in late July, early August, where the futures market had shifted to believing that the Fed was going to stop hiking rates in December of this year. Mm-hmm. That they were going to hike, 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 hit December, and then that was going to be it. And then 2023 was actually going to be a year of rate cuts. That's what the futures market was pricing in as recently as early August. So you had this big shift in expectations. Now okay. you're getting a reset in those expectations because here's the thing. When the market starts believing that and yields start dropping and financial conditions start getting easier, economic demand comes back to the table. All of a sudden, mortgage rates drop, so more buyers come to the housing market. All of a Mm -hmm. sudden, loan rates drop, so maybe I'm going to start buying my car, right? So demand comes back into the market when the market starts to believe things are getting better. So we're kind of on this balancing beam right now. 
So mm-hmm. what we've done is we overshot those expectations. Demand has come back and now we're resetting. All of a sudden, the futures market has gone from December peak in rates to March peak in rates. So we pushed back okay. three months. They've also priced in a higher peak rate. I think of about 70 basis points the shift has been since early August to now. So we're seeing a hawkish shift in expectations towards more prolonged inflation, bigger rate, uh, rate hikes over the next few months. So that's what's been going on here. And the reality is we're going to continue to walk this balancing beam for the next six to 12 months until inflation is actually killed. And it's going to take Mm -hmm. a while to do that. The good news is that inflation does appear to be on the downhill. And what we're going Mm -hmm. to do over the next six months, six to 12 months, is stay within these guardrails. So we're going to have big rallies where everyone's going to say inflation is over. And then we're going to reset and say, oh, inflation is still kind of a problem. Then we're going to have a big (laughs) rally. Inflation's over. Reset. Mm -hmm. We're going to balance between these guardrails. But these guardrails are going to slope upward because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, inflation rates are actually decelerating. Economic demand is moderating meaningfully. When the Fed is hiking interest rates in the way they are hiking interest rates, that does raise the cost of living, the cost of money, the cost of spending for consumers across America. Debt payments are moving up and 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 up. That will slow economic demand. At the same time, with oil prices where they are, with gas prices where they are, that does hurt demand. Higher prices cause demand destruction. So that's going to also factor in here. Then you got to consider, I know the labor market looks strong from the headline jobs numbers, but I there's something funky going on with those numbers. Because mm-hmm. PwC, just, PwC just did a survey that showed that something like 52% of all large companies in America are doing job cuts right now, are doing layoffs right now. Another like mm-hmm. 48%, not 48%, another 40% are considering doing it. It's like nearly every company in America is either firing people or considering firing people. Um, mm-hmm. That's not good at all, right? So yeah. I think the labor market, <laughs> jobless claims are rising. So I think the labor market is is collapsing, even though the headline data doesn't show that. Maybe it's lag. Maybe we'll get some revisions. I don't know. But what I am confident in saying is that the labor market is going to materially weaken and it's going to cause less economic demand for goods and services over the next six months. So I think the demand side of the equation is going to really fall down for inflation. On the other side of the equation, you got supply. I think supply is improving. China's moving past its, its COVID lockdowns. Production over there is increasing. Labor shortages are not a big problem anymore. What happens when a recession hits, when times get tough, people stop just, you know, saying, I don't want to work. They actually have to work now. So you're getting labor participation, I believe, is going to increase over the next six to 12 months. Labor shortages are not going to be a problem. Um, I think you have the opposite problem, actually. So I think production of goods and services is going to increase. Supply is going to move up. Demand is going to move down. That's going to cause the course of inflation to be lower over the next Mm -hmm. six to 12 months. So long as that remains true, the course of stocks will be higher. It's going to be Mm -hmm. a volatile path. Like I said, guardrails, big rallies, Mm -hmm. big sell-offs, big rallies, big sell-offs. But Mm -hmm. importantly, so long as the course of inflation remains, we go from 8% to 7 to 6 to 5 to Mm 4 So long as we do that, then stocks are going to go from the S&P is going to go from 4,000 to 42 to 44 to 46 to 48 to 5,000. That's going to be its course. Now, the trajectory, like I said, it's going to be, okay, we went from 36 
to 43. We probably pull back to 39. Then we go to 44. Then we come back to 4,000. Then we go to 45. Then we come back to 41. Then we go to 46. Then we come back to 42. Then we go to 47, back to 43. It's going to be zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. But each Mm -hmm. zag lower is going to happen at a a higher low. And each zig higher Mm -hmm. is going to happen at a higher high. So I think the uptrend is going to stay in place, but prepare Mm -hmm. for volatility. Two steps forward, one step back. The strategy, ride the two steps forward, unload Mm -hmm. a little when we get euphoric, wait for the one step back, buy back on the dip. Ride the Mm -hmm. two steps forward, unload a little on that euphoria, wait for the Mm -hmm. crash, buy that one step back, and just keep doing that in a repeatable pattern for the next 12 months. And I think you're going to be in a great position. Right now, we're in a one step back. I think mm-hmm. we're going to find some footing within the next few days. At price is not too much lower than where we are today. So I think it's a good time to start saying, all right, give me some. Give me some more. Give me some more. Mm-hmm. Whatever you load up here, let's ride the market higher over the next probably month or two and then unload mm-hmm. a little bit. And then mm-hmm. wait for that next step back and come back in, get some more, ride it back higher, unload a little bit. Buy mm-hmm. when there's blood on the streets, sell when people get greedy. I think you got to really, really, really live up to that mantra over the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. So how many of these uh, rallies and pullbacks do you foresee in the next six to 12 months? Oh, they're going to happen until inflation's done. And inflation's not going to be done for 12 to 18 months, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think probably by mid-23, we'll be at an inflation rate in that 3% range, which I think the market will finally be comfortable with. And we mm-hmm. will stop getting these massive moves higher, massive moves lower. Uh, but until then, I'm, I'm fully expecting um, massive volatility to remain in the market. But, it, but is it going to yeah, be like a week up, a week down, a month up, a week down, a month up, a month down? How, like, yeah, how is I, that? I, 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 yeah, I mean, I mean, it's impossible to say. But okay. what, what, I, what I think will be the catalyst for big moves higher um, will be the inflation prints. I think the CPI mm-hmm. print at the beginning of every okay. month is going to be the catalyst which moves stocks higher for several mm-hmm. weeks, if not you know several months, if, if, if you don't get any bad news in between those inflation prints. Um, so I because I, I really think that you know we get the nice CPI September 13th. Um, I think that's going to be a really good CPI in terms of uh, the number is going to be lower than expected and much lower than, mm-hmm. than the July number. Um, and then I think the next one's going to be even lower and the one after that's going to be even lower. So, so long as that remains true, then my kind of signposts for the next 12 months are these CPI prints. I'm going to be really aggressive around the CPI prints. I want to see stocks rally out of them because I think those numbers are going to get better and better and better as we move closer towards mid 23. Awesome. Uh, cryptos seem to have followed the same path as stocks. Um, yes. so what's their trajectory into the end of the year? Is it the same as what we've just discussed or is there something a little different going on with cryptos? As you've talked about, there seems to be a big rally, uh, with an upcoming happening 12 months out. Is that going to affect it just as much as the stock market? Yeah. So, um, yeah, cryptos have been following the same path and I do think they continue to follow the same path as I just outlined for stocks. Um, the risk assets right now, we talked about this last week, all the matters is inflation. Um, yeah. and the trajectory of stocks and cryptos is going to be determined by the trajectory of inflation. If inflation moves lower, even at a choppy pace, stocks and cryptos will move higher, even at a choppy pace. Um, mm-hmm. but one thing that I've noticed and I'm really kind of concerned about in the crypto markets is the, the magnitude of the retracement. Right. So okay. we talked about it. 
we talked about it last week, right? The 50% retracement level on the S&P 500. Did mm-hmm. we talk about that? Yep. Yeah. Yes, so did. yeah. in the recent summer rally, just to recap for, for new listeners, or if you forgot about it last week, um, the S&P 500 last week, or I believe it was two Fridays ago, retook its 50% retracement level. Basically meaning, okay, it topped here, it bottomed here, and now in this rally back, it took back 50% of its losses in the bear market. That's a meaningful mm-hmm. level because never before has, post-World War II, has the S&P 500 retaken that 50% retracement level and then proceeded to go on to make new lows. No. What happens mm-hmm. is it then enters a new bull market. So that's a yep. very critical level to watch, and we cleared it on the S&P 500. But if you do the same analysis on Bitcoin, we didn't even clear the first Fibonacci retracement level. We didn't even retake that 23.6% retracement, meaning mm-hmm. – and we only got to about 20%. So while the stock market, the S&P 500, regained 50% of its losses in the in the summer rally, Bitcoin only retook about 20% of its losses. Mm-hmm. I don't like I don't like that. I I really don't. <laughs> and one of the reasons I don't is if you look at the last big bull market in cryptos, it was coming mm-hmm. out of the pandemic. Bitcoin, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, and Kathy Wood's growth ARK fund, all four of those assets retook the 50% retracement level within two or three weeks of one another. It was Mm -hmm. around, I think it was like May, April, May 2020. They all retook 50% of their losses within a very narrow window, basically meaning it was a broad march higher. All risk assets were marching to the same tune. And when you have mm-hmm. that incredible breadth, you have an incredible reason to believe the rally is going to live on for a lot longer. This time around, we're not seeing that. S&P mm-hmm. took back 50%. NASDAQ didn't. Kathy mm-hmm. Wood's ARK fund didn't. Bitcoin mm-hmm. down at 20%. So we're not getting this incredible march higher. That Mm. makes me not as bullish on cryptos for a near-term breakout. I think what that confirms to me is our original consolidation thesis, which is that we Mm -hmm. consolidate around 20 to 24, 20 to 23. We consolidate in that level into the end of the year until Mm -hmm. the Fed actually does engineer some pivot, becomes more dovish, until that pre-happening hype comes in, until some legal catalysts come into the fold. I think 2023 is shaping up to be a blockbuster year for cryptos. But the Mm -hmm. recent lack of relative strength in cryptos compared Mm -hmm. to the S&P 500 makes me believe that the drift higher to 30K, that was kind of in our calculus matrix for a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't think the probability is that or that high. I mm-hmm. think more it's more likely that as opposed to drifting higher to 30K, we stagnate in the lower 20s before booming higher in 2023. So that's what I'm seeing with cryptos right now. I think stocks will outperform cryptos into the end of the year. That's what the data is telling mm-hmm. me. So what – What's the reason for this disconnect right now? Because traditionally, when we've talked about the market and cryptos, we've always talked about that there's a correlation to what the market does the, is what uh, the crypto market does. But obviously, we're seeing a disconnect right now. What, what do you yeah. see that disconnect being? You know, I think there's two things. 
One is I believe the stocks that will be the biggest winners over the next 12 months are going to be those that will benefit the most from disinflation. As we go from 8% inflation to 3 4% inflation. Mm -hmm. Those are growth stocks, long duration assets, not Mm -hmm. cryptos. Mm -hmm. You have to consider, let's go back to 2021. Growth stocks, names like Opendoor, names like SoFi, Mm -hmm. they peaked Mm -hmm. in February of 2021. And then Mm -hmm. they came crashing lower Throughout the second quarter of 21, the third quarter of 21, the fourth quarter of 21, the first quarter of 22, the second quarter of 22, they've been crashing for 18 months now because Mm -hmm. inflation has gone from 2% to 8% over that time. But look at cryptos. Cryptos didn't peak out until November of 21, Mm -hmm. meaning that there was a eight-month stretch there, a 10-month stretch there where – Growth stocks crashed 50, 60% because inflation mm-hmm. went from two to six, two to seven. But cryptos actually went higher as inflation went from two to six, two to seven. So if we kind of take the flip side of that coin, because I think that's what we're moving into, that coin is now flipping over. And as opposed mm-hmm. to going from two to eight, we're going to go from eight to two. I'm going to mm-hmm. bet on the stocks that got crushed as it went from two to eight on the idea mm-hmm. that as it goes from eight to two, they're going to soar the most. So I think the open doors, the SoFi's, a lot of the stocks in Kathy Woods Fund, those are the biggest beneficiaries of disinflation. As we go from eight to two, those stocks have incredible runway potential. They're mm-hmm. going to soar as the rest of the market may not, just like they sunk while the rest of the market did not throughout large parts of 21 as inflation was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Cryptos Mm -hmm. did not follow the trajectory of those growth stocks. So I think that kind of explains some of the the bifurcation you're seeing between Mm -hmm. cryptos and growth stocks. Normally, they're very strongly correlated. But now that we're getting in this period of what I believe will be prolonged significant disinflation, you're Mm -hmm. going to see those growth stocks significantly outperform cryptos. Uh, over mm-hmm. the next six six months, I, I believe. But then again, in 23, you have some pretty big individual catalysts for cryptos like the pre-havening, some legal catalysts coming to the fold, I believe. That mm-hmm. will significantly help cryptos play catch up. And I think over the next 12 months, both are going to soar. But in the next six months, I have a much higher degree of confidence in stocks, in certain growth stocks moving 50% mm-hmm. higher than I do in certain cryptos moving 50% higher. Another thing to talk about here is huge volumes of trust were lost in the crypto market in the summer. Yeah. Celsius, Voyager, Terra. I mean, that those wounds cut deep and Mm. it takes a while for investors, traders, crypto enthusiasts even to lick those wounds and come back in the market. So mm-hmm. what you could be seeing that the lack of retracement firepower in Bitcoin in the altcoins is a result partially of the fact that these you got some wounded soldiers in the crypto battle. <laughs> and it's going to take them a while before they're at full strength ready to jump back into no man's land and and storm, you know, storm the other side. So I think that <laughs> that, that is partly what's going on as well. 
Okay. Uh, well, that's it for our topics, but I do, we definitely have some fan questions this week. Uh, starting off, Christian Campfield, you mentioned oil prices coming down, but what about food prices? Food prices have been trending upward, and they will keep going up for maybe a year or more. Droughts and fertilizer shortages have created a mess. Unlike oil, food supplies can't be increased without a year-plus lag. Food's coming down. Food's coming down. All right. <laughs> Let me uh, – oh, I'm, I'm, as you were starting that question, I was pulling up the chart. So sure, I'll, I'll screen share it with you. Let me get it up on this computer. Too many computers over here, Aaron. But yes, food prices, specifically meat prices, are coming down. And that's okay. – you know, we there, there was the deal where now there are uh, grain exports coming out of Ukraine. Um, that So that happened. That definitely helped the, the, the food shortage. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent points about there has been a massive drought throughout America. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. farmers are being told to cut back on water. They're being ordered to cut back on water. I think the, the production of food is way down this year. Output is way lower. Absolutely true. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is going to remain an inflationary headwind for the space. But there are other factors coming into the fold which will create disinflation, uh, such mm-hmm. as the increase of uh, wheat exports out of Russia and Ukraine. I think that is going to create disinflation over the next six months. Um, But yes, meat prices are indeed um, moving lower as we speak. So this is, this is beef prices in in the United States. We, we, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we peaked actually late last year and and they've been coming down. Um, We just rattled off two consecutive months of declines in, in uh, poultry prices uh, and that mm-hmm. is a first since early 2021. So yes, you are starting to see some disinflation in the price of foods uh, and the price of meats, particularly. Uh, I do think that droughts plus lower output will continue to weigh on the. They will disallow food prices from becoming as cheap as they were in 2019, but. Mm-hmm. Still, the increase of labor at certain food production facilities and the increase of wheat exports out of Russia, Ukraine, plus some lower economic demand for higher end meats, more expensive meats, more expensive foods, all that will come together to gradually pull down food prices at the grocery store and at restaurants, especially at restaurants over the Mm -hmm. next six to 12 months. So I think you're still going to see disinflation in food, though, yes, it will be less notable, noticeable than the disinflation you're seeing um, in, in oil prices. But mm-hmm. what's very important to note is that energy is, is the backbone of everything, right? I mm-hmm. mean, how does food arrive at your grocery store? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, food arrives at your grocery store um, in the back of a truck. That mm-hmm. runs on gas. How, mm-hmm. how does food arrive at the restaurant in the back mm-hmm. of a truck that arrives <laughs> on gas? So yeah. if oil prices continue to move lower and gas mm-hmm. goes from six bucks a gallon to five bucks a gallon to four bucks a gallon, so on and so forth, then the mm-hmm. cost of transportation of food is going mm-hmm. to move lower. That's a major yep. input cost for food. So mm-hmm. – as energy costs come down, the cost of everything will come down too. Even Got if it. there are droughts, even if food supply is still short, 
if a major input cost of the transportation of food moves down, you'll get disinflation mm-hmm. in food prices as well. So um, energy is what we're following closely. We got to follow energy and that will tell mm-hmm. us where inflation is going. Energy is moving lower. Inflation is going to move lower too. That's our two cents. All right. Uh, next question from Rob Norman. Could you give us an update on Fubo? It's doubled, tripled at one point, but it has eased. Yeah, Fubo got caught up in the meme stock madness. I wouldn't make too much <laughs> of uh, of the moves. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. our stance on the stock and the company remains unchanged. Uh, we thought there was massive promise to build out its own sports book, create this integrated uh, mm-hmm. sports betting and streaming yeah. platform experience. They basically scrapped plans for that. It's not happening anymore. If it does does happen, it's going to happen at a later date with a big partner. They're not doing it themselves anymore. So for us, the big bull thesis is kind of dwindled. There's still an opportunity for mm-hmm. the company to grow just as a streaming TV platform. That's a very competitive, commoditized industry. YouTube TV dominates it. Fubo TV does serve a niche market for soccer fans, super sports fans, but that's a very small market and they're spending so much on acquiring content and advertising and marketing and brand awareness that they need massive economies of scale to produce any sort of profits. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure they're going to be able to achieve those massive economies of scale. And therefore, I'm not sure they're going to be able to achieve the profits necessary to warrant a significantly higher stock price. Yes, Mm -hmm. at $2, it was undervalued. It tripled all the way to like six or seven. I know it's gone crazy. That's meme stock madness. Fundamentally, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's worth much more than $5. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you own it, maybe hope that it can catch another meme stock rally, sell it at seven, eight, nine, 10. Um, if you don't own it, I'd stay away from it. Much better opportunities out there right now. But overall, mm-hmm. that's that's a story where execution really matters. Um, mm-hmm. And great idea, bad execution leaves you with a stock that is is never going to reclaim its $30, $40, $50 highs. Gotcha. All right. And our last question from Mike S., I would appreciate an outlook thesis on Luminar Technologies and Aurora Innovations. Luke mentioned those two companies will be leaders for AV, for LiDAR and the software. Elon Musk said LiDAR is too expensive, bulky, and totally unnecessary. Maybe you can address that as well. Now, this video has two cars that are moving. Okay. Yep. There is going to be this car on the left of the screen. It is a white Tesla Model X. All right. There's this car on the right of the screen. Mm -hmm. It is, I believe, a Volvo, though the brand of the car is not entirely um, uh, relevant. But it is Mm -hmm. another car that is outfitted with Luminar LiDAR technology. So basically, what you have is a Tesla that's going to be in full self-driving mode without LiDAR. And a, mm-hmm. a different car that is going to be in full self-driving mode with LiDAR, specifically with Luminar's LiDAR. Both of these All cars right. over the next 15 seconds are going to progress down their lanes in full self-driving mode. There are little – and I don't know if these are rubber or something. These are little replicas of children <laughs> as like a child running across the road. Sure. And this Got test it. is being conducted to see, okay, will these cars stop for a child running across the road in full self-driving mode? How good is the self-driving technology at Tesla and how good is it at Luminar? 
At this point in time, I'm going to shut up and let the video explain the rest. (laughs) All right. So they are going. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) well, the Tesla one, uh, it's still going. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that in a nutshell mm-hmm. is why we're bullish on lidar and luminar specifically. All right. um, <laughs> Tesla's, full self-driving, Tesla's full self driving is a complete aberration. It is a joke. It is not good. It is not uh-huh. ready. It is now being now cost fifteen thousand dollars. That is the biggest fifteen thousand dollars any consumer will waste in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you need LiDAR to do true autonomous driving. Um, mm-hmm. The human eye, yes, can see everything and detect everything. But the human eye is like a 600 megapixel camera. And Tesla is using like two to three megapixel cameras. So in order to replicate the human eye's robustness of vision, you're going to need hundreds of cameras on a Tesla. That is just not mm-hmm. feasible in terms of weight or in terms of cost. So Elon's all worried about the mm-hmm. cost of LiDAR. Well, you only need two or three LiDAR in that car. Luminar has one little LiDAR at the front, one little LiDAR, mm-hmm. 750 bucks basically, less than $1,000. That's not expensive when you're talking about a $50,000, $60,000. What are Tesla's? $130,000 for the Model X? When you're talking about mm-hmm. cars that expensive, another grand so you don't kill a child? Yeah, I'll take that. Um, yeah. LiDAR is 100% necessary to full autonomy. You need LiDAR in the self-driving stack. You need LiDAR, you need radar, and you need cameras. This idea of mm-hmm. vision-only autonomy is a farce. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're super bullish on – I mean just the science is, is very clear on this. We're very mm-hmm. bullish on LiDAR technologies as the foundational – technology of self-driving applications now why do we like luminar and aurora so much well Mm -hmm. in the lidar space it's very early very very early and when you're talking about Mm -hmm. very very early stage companies and very very early stage technologies you want to bet on the best teams because really smart people in really early stage businesses out execute all the other businesses and build the best products which generate the most economic value over time follow the talent in later stages follow the money in early stages follow the talent because the talent makes the money money doesn't make money talent makes money right so follow Mm -hmm. the talent luminar and aurora per our checks of the industry we know a lot of people in this industry luminar and aurora have the most talented engineers by far and away luminar is headed Mm -hmm. by austin russell who is a absolute visionary and somebody that we think could be the next elon musk that team of engineers is second to none in terms of developing lidar. Aurora has stolen mm-hmm. a lot of lidar or a lot of luminar people, and Aurora itself is headed by like a three-headed monster in this space. Three people that are probably the most mo- well-respected people in all of self-driving. So, Aurora yeah. has fabulous talent as well, and per our checks, they are making exceptional progress in their self-driving application. So, when you talk about the self-driving space, we think there are two top socks to buy luminar and aurora outside of Mm -hmm. that there's still some great buys but those are definitely the top shelf and if you're Mm going to play self-driving you got to play with those two names 
this video to me significantly <laughs> strongly underscores why Tesla full self-driving vision only autonomy is mm-hmm. a pipeline dream that's never going to be commercially acceptable anywhere besides Tesla really. So why is Musk doubling down on camera only? Musk, Musk, Musk is a prideful guy. Musk is a very prideful guy. All right. Uh, here's, here, here's my yeah. theory. Here's, here's my theory. Mm-hmm. When, when Tesla started their self-driving applications, um, mm-hmm. this was like 2014, 2015. And LiDAR at that point in time was very expensive. I think as, as recently as like 2012, LiDAR, a single LiDAR sensor cost like $75,000. So when Elon mm-hmm. Musk and company decided to tackle self-driving, they had to figure out a way to do it without LiDAR because LiDAR was mm-hmm. just too dang expensive, way too expensive. So they adopted a vision-only approach because they couldn't slap mm-hmm. $20,000, dollars $40,000 LiDAR appendages onto a Tesla Model th- Model S at that time, which was already costing $70,000, $80,000, right? They couldn't make a $150,000 car that was never going to achieve major mm-hmm. adoption. So they were forced, because of the time in which they started their self-driving experiments, were forced mm-hmm. to develop a vision-only autonomy approach. Now, as many of us know, if you are a not, – not, not even if you're a prideful human, just if you're any type of human – if you do mm-hmm. something one way enough, you become convinced that's the only way to do it. The only way to do it. So yeah. they've done vision-only autonomy throughout 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And they become convinced that's the only way to do it. But at the, at the mm-hmm. same time, concurrent to them developing a vision-only autonomy approach, LIDAR costs have gone from 75K to 50K to 40K to 30K to 20K to 10K to 5K to 7K to 6K to 5K to Luminar's installing LIDAR for less than $1,000. Mm-hmm. We've gone from 75 to under under a K. I mean, that's a ridiculous cost decline curve. Now, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it's not 2015 anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore, you know? Yeah. They can install LIDAR. Volvo can install LIDAR on their cars for less than $1,000. Why not do it? So mm-hmm. I, I think that what's happening is basically, you know, Elon and company have, were forced to develop vision-only autonomy, and mm-hmm. they're doubling down on it because, I mean, that's all they've known for seven years mm-hmm. now is vision-only autonomy, and they've basically staked their whole future on it. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to say, oh, seven years of us saying vision-only autonomy is is the only way to do it is is wrong. You know, you can't really mm-hmm. say that. So they're going to keep trying vision-only autonomy. And maybe eventually they'll figure it out, but probably not for another 15 or 20 years. And in the meantime, LiDAR is going to dominate the self-driving scene and Luminar is going to become a very, very, very large company. That doesn't kill kids. Is there, <laughs> is there a, is there a uh, scenario where they quiet, quietly fold and incorporate LiDAR into Tesla's? Yeah, or so there will we never see LiDAR in Tesla? So they, they are using LiDAR. We don't know to what extent. Um, there were reports mm-hmm. that they ordered Luminar LiDAR back, I believe in late 2020. Okay. Um, and people have seen Tesla's outfitted with Luminar LiDAR. Um, mm-hmm. so Tesla is definitely testing LiDAR, whether or not they're testing it to eventually integrate it, or they're testing it to benchmark their own self-driving efforts against those of a LiDAR powered <laughs> self-driving effort. I don't know. But Tesla yeah, is yeah. definitely not just closing the door on LiDAR. They are using okay. LiDAR to some extent, either testing mm-hmm. for potential future integration 
or testing to benchmark their own efforts. I don't know, but they are using LiDAR. All right. Well, that kind of sums up everything. Uh, great insights, as always, for our listeners and HGI investors. Do you have any last words uh, before we wrap? Aaron, we covered a lot of ground today. I don't know if I have any last words. We did. Words. We covered a lot today. <laughs> we, we talked about a lot of different industries, a lot of different technologies. So, no, you know, I, yeah. I said what I had to say on this wonderful Tuesday morning. All right. Well, in that case, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We love to hear the feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and to always see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.